Who knows what that phrase, nothing can for sin atone, mean? Yeah, Riggs. Nothing we can do can take away the sin that we've committed. That's exactly right. What does that word atonement mean? That's like a, if intentional is like a $1 Christian word, atonement's at least a $5 Christian word. Yeah, Nick. Pardon. There we go. Yeah, uh, pardon. That's another word that can sometimes be a little bit complicated. It simply means like our, our sin has been paid for. So coming back to what Riggs has said, nothing for our sin can atone. Nothing that we do, nothing in and of ourselves can pay the penalty that our sins deserve. And so that refrain, nothing but the blood of Jesus, is so central. That's a phrase that is worth meditating on and one that the implications of which we're going to consider tonight. So I don't know about y'all, but personally, I hate exclusivist claims. When someone says that something has to be only one way, perhaps it's the contrarian in me, but I always want to react against it. If someone tells me to do one thing or to accomplish a task in a certain way, I will find another way to accomplish that task just to spite them. I even do this with machines. Google Maps will tell me to take a ride at this turn, even though I know that if I go straight and then take the ride at the further street, I'm going to arrive at my destination more quickly. I end a phone call, and whoever that lady is on the phone call that says, please leave a message after the beep comes on, I hang up right before the beep and I leave a voice memo just so she knows what's up. But what about the claim, there's only one way to God? Now, I think I can feel at times anything, again, that is an exclusive claim like that, that there is only one way to God, it kind of makes me pause for a second, but personally, as a Christian, that's not a claim that I really want to mess with. I'm happy to submit to that claim. But you wonder, does this claim that there's only one way to God or that Jesus is the only way to God, does it sound unfair or maybe a bit illogical? Perhaps you think that if you were God, if you were up there, wherever God is up there, that you would be a much more discerning and gracious God. You'd be a benevolent ruler that would provide many ways for people to come to you. In fact, you'd make it easy for them to find you however they wanted and on their own terms. And I think that's part of where the crux of the issue is. The crux is not that, yeah, some people believe that Jesus is the only way to God. That's fine if Christians want to believe that. I think where the rub sits is when we say that Jesus is the only way, And if you try to find other ways except through Jesus to get to God, that you're not going to make it. That's where people have an issue. But here's the thing. We may choose to disbelieve Jesus, but he has not left us with the option of being one truth among many. We may choose to disbelieve Jesus, 
is the only way to God. But he has not left us with the option of him being simply one truth among many. That's what we call pluralism. Another big word that simply means that there are many ways that we can arrive at God. Again, our culture in a very tolerant culture really wants to war against that claim. It wants to have a pluralistic society. There's so many ways that you can get your ice cream. You can go over to Andy's or you can go to Walmart and get God's favorite ice cream, Bluebell. You can probably even order ice cream online these days. It's crazy. But with our Lord Jesus Christ, there is only one way. In the scripture's own words, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And that's a pretty clear statement. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I think when the Bible speaks this clearly, it's imperative that we listen. So tonight we're going to consider that question and we're going to consider why this Jesus is worthy of being the only way to God. You can see in your handouts there that we're going to begin by looking at what the Bible teaches about Jesus's divinity. That is how Jesus is God, a very God. He's not just a man, but Jesus is God. In taking on flesh, Jesus didn't set his divinity aside. No, he is both fully God and fully man. Then, after we've affirmed Jesus' divinity, we're going to consider the claims that Jesus himself makes about himself. So if Jesus is God, which I hope that we can prove, then we must recognize that the claims he makes about himself are at least worth considering. And then we're going to close by considering some ways that Christians might undermine their own belief that Jesus is the only way to God. So first, let's consider that point. Jesus is God. He's not just a good teacher or a prophet. If you remember that passage from Matthew 16, that famous passage where Jesus says that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You remember what came right before that momentous statement? Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, who do you say, or excuse me, who do people say that I am? They respond back, oh, well, maybe you're Elijah or one of the prophets. So, The world says that Jesus is just a prophet. He's just another prophet sent by God, or maybe he's just a good teacher. But then he turns to the disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? Peter responds with that wonderful profession that you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so right there, Peter recognizes Jesus for who he truly is. He's not just another teacher. He's not just another prophet. He is God, a very God, the Messiah, the one that God sent into the world to save us from our sins. Flip with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at a few of these verses here. Been studying this with a few different guys. And goodness, as I was prepping about it, I was like, I can't pass up this opportunity to reflect even more on the fact that the scriptures testify to Jesus as God. So find your place there in Mark chapter 2. Mark's the second gospel right after Matthew in the New Testament. 
So Jesus has begun his ministry. He's been, uh, he's been installed. Uh, God has said that he's the one with whom he is well pleased. He's gone on, uh, on teaching throughout the various regions. He's been healing a ton of people. And then we come to this passage again where he heals some more people. So in chapter 2 and verse 1 it says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he, that is Jesus, was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's a, that's a peculiar statement. This man is paralyzed. <laughs> he can't walk. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What is that going to do for him? Let's keep reading verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So again, we see that phrase there in verse five, Jesus sees the faith of these men and he says, your sins are forgiven. And how do the scribes respond? Well, they're incredulous. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy for, as verse 7 says, who can forgive sins but God alone? But how do we see Jesus' divinity on display in these verses and what follows? This is me looking for some feedback. What are some ways that Jesus shows his divinity in the verses that follow there? Boom, there's one. Lily says that he perceived their thoughts. I don't know about y'all. I can look out right now. I have no idea what's going on in Chandler Abbott's head right now. I can't perceive his thoughts. I don't know what Amber's thinking about. I don't know what Daniel's thinking about. I can't perceive people's thoughts. But Jesus here, God, a very God, is able to perceive their thoughts. What's another one? right. He has the authority to forgive sins. It's interesting because the very premise that the scribes lob at him turns back on them. They say, who is this man? And why is he, why is he forgiving sins? Who does he think that he is? For who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus in turn says, your, your sins are forgiven, 
And he demonstrates his power and authority over the natural world by also physically healing this man. So Jesus, he demonstrates to us that the scribes are actually right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus is like, you guys are actually right. God alone can forgive sins. And so now I pronounce to you that your sins are forgiven because of your faith. This is in contrast to what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13. This is the moment after David has committed that horrible sin with Bathsheba. He commits adultery with Bathsheba while her husband is away at war. She, she conceives, she becomes pregnant. And so in order to cover up his mistakes, he sends her husband to the front lines of the battle so that he's killed in war. It's just this grotesque sin that David commits. And Nathan is confronting him. Nathan the prophet is confronting him. But eventually Nathan says to him, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Notice Jesus doesn't have to say the Lord has put your, way, your sin away. Jesus himself says your sins are forgiven. Here in this passage, Nathan, who is simply a prophet, cannot put sin away. But in Mark 2, Jesus, the greater prophet, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, is able to look to this sinful man and pronounce your sins are forgiven because he is God. All of this matters because if Jesus is not God, then he cannot sufficiently atone for our sins. Just like that verse we sang, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For Jesus, the, the God of the Bible who took on flesh, was the only one who lived a righteous life. And so in his sacrifice, in his death, he's the only one who is able to satisfy God's requirements because God, who is holy, he's completely intolerant of sin. Sin cannot dwell in God's presence. And so all of us, all of us who are sinful by nature, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God can't tolerate our presence. But Jesus, the righteous God man, the one who committed no sin, the one who is perfectly holy, he can be tolerated in God's presence. And that's why it's only him that can present us before the Father. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. One of the helpful ways to think about Jesus's divinity is to simply remember the one passages, John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. If you ever talk to anyone and you want to ask them questions or they're asking you questions about what the Bible actually says about whether Jesus is God, point them to those passages. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. If someone comes up to you, including a Mormon missionary, and says that Jesus is not God, but Jesus is of God, you can point to the scriptures and clearly demonstrate from these passages that no, Jesus is God. For John 1, verses 1 and following, in the beginning the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created. We think about that creation account in Genesis 1 that God speaks and everything comes into, uh, into existence like that. Well, Jesus is in the beginning with God. And Paul says here in Colossians of Jesus that by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together, and he is the body, excuse me, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. This Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Bible is resoundingly clear that Jesus is God. If you deny that statement, you have to throw out the entirety of the scriptures. And again, that Jesus is God matters because what he says and what he claims about himself matters. That moves us to our second point. If Jesus is God, not only is he the only sufficient one to atone for our sins, but he is worthy of our attention for those claims he makes. In his seminal work, Mere Christianity, which some of you have probably read, C.S. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So what does this Jesus who is God claim about himself? Probably the clearest passage on this subject is from John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is, Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. And he is the only life. And no one can come to the Father except through him. This is where the exclusivist claims of Jesus usually rub secular people the wrong way. Again, how arrogant and self-deceived does one have to be to believe that there is only one way to God? Like people climbing a mountain but who all take a different route. Isn't it fine to ta travel these different paths as long as we end up at the same place? Like four self-professed art connoisseurs who look at an impressionistic painting and come up with four different ways to interpret it, isn't it fine to find our own interpretation of God? Or like the old adage, all roads lead to Rome. 
Why are Christians so picky about the specific road they take? Well, the answer to these questions can only be found in the uniqueness of Jesus as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. For only in Jesus do we have the one with whom God is well pleased. Only in Jesus do we have one who never sinned. Only in Jesus do we have one who could be both fully God and fully man. Only in Jesus do we have one who willingly went to a cross in the place of sinners and offered that sacrifice to God to satisfy God's righteous wrath against sin because of Jesus' own obedience. Only in Jesus do we have a king who, unlike Cleopatra or Alexander the Great or Nero or Caesar Augustus or George Washington, who, when they were buried, never rose from the dead, this Jesus, after being buried three days later, rose from the grave. And only in this resurrected king, who now sits at the right hand of God the Father, can we find salvation. Jesus is the only way because Jesus is the only sufficient way. We may think that we can sufficiently find our way to him on our own, but Jesus has not left us that option. He's told us that through him and in him is the only way. No other religion or self-help scheme offers what Jesus offers. In fact, as I was thinking about this earlier, I thought about that every religion or every other thought pattern, every other system involves some level of self-justification. That is, the self-justification simply means that what I do is what earns me the right to be before God. What differentiates Christianity from every other religion is in the means of obtaining salvation. In Islam, your good deeds must outweigh your bad deeds in order to Allah to relinquish from the judgments that come upon you. In Buddhism, you must follow the eightfold path. Atheism is just a a whole different game. I don't personally have enough faith to be an atheist. It just seems very nihilistic to, like, if you don't believe in God, what what purpose does this life serve? If anything, I mean, at least believe in, in something because everything that we do is just for nothing. According to atheism, there's no God, nor is there a heaven or hell, so we just must seek pleasure while we can in this life, and we'll just act according to the kind of plastic morality standards of our time. In Catholicism, following the sacraments like communion and penance are necessary to administer salvific grace and favor upon the Christian. In the true gospel, in the true gospel of Jesus Christ alone, does God give his people so much that he not only does the work for us. Jesus not only does the work for us, we don't have to do the work, but then he gives it to us as a free gift through faith to all who believe. We don't have to earn it. So the decision stands before you. You've probably heard Robert Frost's famous words, two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled. But do you, friends, know the beginning of that poem? Robert Frost writes, two, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Frost recognizes the discontinuity between being one traveler and being able to journey down two paths. 
though he looks as far down the path as he can, he ultimately doesn't know where it's going to lead, and he must simply decide which one he's going to follow. But our great God, he has not left us without. Okay, that was actually a little bit of a deception. We're not going to do the catechism this time, but I'm glad you guys remember it. Never forget that our God has not left himself without witness. What I actually want to say is that our gracious God has not left us without a clear understanding of the right path. He has put before us his son, Jesus. (laughs) Though God will indeed punish the wicked, as we see in Isaiah 13, 11, God is going to lay low all who rebel against him. Though his wrath will be revealed against the ungodly. Remember, there is one, and there's only one, with whom God is well pleased. Matthew 3.17 records, this is my beloved son. This is God speaking. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the only one with whom God is well pleased. At our core, we're rebellious. We've chosen to follow created things rather than the creator. We've chosen to try to build up knowledge for ourselves to be like God rather than to submit to God's care. But the marvelous truth of this Jesus with whom God is well pleased is that he invites all who are weary and heavy laden to cast their sins upon him, to come to him as the only sufficient one. Imagine you're drowning in an ocean. You start to see a boat come up alongside you but rather than hand you a life jacket or a ladder to climb up into the boat, they hand you a center block. Now that would be a royal L. It's gonna force you down into the water, ultimately leading to your demise. And that's exactly what sin does to us. It places a weight upon us that we cannot bear on our own, a weight that ultimately leads us to destruction. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, my favorite book of all time outside of the Bible, captures this metaphor beautifully. Christian, the name of the pilgrim who has undertaken the journey to the celestial city that is heaven, encounters various trials along the way, as we all do in the Christian life. He recounts, listen closely, he recounts, as I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came upon a certain place where there was a den. And as I lay down in that place to sleep, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face far from his own house. He had a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. I looked, and I saw him open the book and read within it. And as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able to contain it any longer, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, 
what shall I do? Christian, knowing the weight of his sin, that burden that he sees carrying on his back, when he encounters this word, he becomes aware of that weight. And in fact, at first, it seems that reading this word actually increased the burden on his back. And so he comes to an end of himself. And the only thing he knows left to say is what shall I do? The crucial shifting point for a Christian comes as he beholds the cross of Christ. The narrator relays, Christian ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross and little below in the bottom, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed off his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to tumble until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. Christian looks to the cross of Christ, the only way to salvation, and that burden falls off his back. That cinder block is taken out of his hands and he's pulled up. Christian, singing his song of deliverance, says, thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anything ease the grief that I was in until I came here. What a place is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall off from my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed tomb. Blessed rather be the man that was there put to shame for me. In Jesus, in Jesus alone, can we find one who will bear the weight of our sin and shame for us. No other religious text speaks of a person like this who is God of very God, who came as flesh into this world to take that shame, that burden upon himself and to instead clothe you with his own righteousness. Praise God that God himself provides the means of salvation that he requires from us. In Jesus and Jesus alone can we find one whose righteousness can be ours through faith. In Jesus and Jesus alone do we have one who presents us pure before God the Father so that just as God says of his own son, this is the one with whom I am well pleased, we can have confidence that if we have turned from our sins, we've rejected our sins, and we've turned to Christ by faith, believing that he's the only sufficient one to save us from our sins through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the Father, then we can also have confidence that if we've done that, God also looks at us as those with whom he is well pleased. As Paul says in Colossians 3, our life is hidden with Christ in God. 
That is an astounding reality. That again, Jesus, the only one who truly deserved to be seen by God as the one with whom he has pleasure, now for all people who are united to him in faith, can be said of them that God has pleasure in him. I want you to look at me for a minute. Maybe you've never heard the words, I love you, son, or I love you, daughter. Maybe you've never had that teacher, that coach, that friend, that parent, that boss who said that they're proud of you or that with you they're well-pleased. Friends, you can have confidence that if you're united to Christ, God, your heavenly Father, looks at you and says, with you, I am well pleased because of my son. And I hope that that truth comforts your heart. I hope that if you're a Christian, that truth compels you to share the gospel with others. We are those who are wandering about in this world just like Christian with that burden on our back. We're trying to climb this hill with an unbearable weight upon us. And that's the majority of people out there. And yet Jesus wants to take that burden upon himself. But how can they know unless someone proclaims that good news to them? How can they know that in Christ, God the Father is pleased with them unless we share that news with them? Jesus Christ, our older brother, the second Adam, the greater prophet, the greater priest, the greater king, bears those things for us. And in Christ, in this Christ, this Jesus alone, can we find salvation. But again, this father who will receive his own children, this father who looks on those who have professed faith in him as those with whom he has pleasure, is the same Father that will, will reject all who refuse to find faith in him. If you think that you can obtain that pleasure or find peace with God through another way besides the Lord Jesus Christ, you're deceived. And there's only one path that that leads to, and that's to destruction, as the scriptures say. So you must turn from yourself, and you must trust in God. Because God is just. His very holiness requires that he punish sin. But you can find shelter and refuge in Jesus Christ. As we close, I want to reflect on some ways that genuine Christians or cultural Christians can undermine their own belief that Jesus is the only way to God. That leads us to our final point. Do you live like Jesus is the only way to God? I think the first way that we can do this is by living the Jesus plus something life. Jesus is just one of many items on a buffet. Jesus plus my personal happiness. Yes, I do believe that Jesus is the only way to God, but Jesus would also want me to be happy, right? So I'm just going to go on pursuing pleasure. 
I'm going to go on doing things that are contrary to what his word teaches. That's Jesus plus something. Maybe it's Jesus plus pleasure or money or success or health. On the path to following Jesus, we cannot look back. Maybe you think of that passage in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, where Jesus says that if anyone is to follow him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And then he uses this image of anybody who sets out to tread the ox cannot look back. What he's picking up on there is that in the ancient Near East, if you were holding this ox, this, this tread, and you were going through the field, if you looked back, you would then veer off the path. How many things out there are tempting us to look back? Success in school, friendships to tout for, personal pleasure, our own sexual happiness, whatever it may be, the Lord Jesus requires that we take personal inventory of our lives. When we come to this word, it pierces every thought. It discerns our very thoughts. And so as we come to this word, it's going to reveal our sin. It's going to reveal the things that we try to add to Jesus. But there is no Christianity without the cross. So we have to bear that weight. And we have to do the work of putting ourselves before this word so that we can discern what those things are. I think second, just another way, is living primarily as a resident of this earth and not of heaven. As the writer of Hebrews says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Are you living to make a heaven out of this earth? Would your values, priorities, Time, money, and the people you spend your time with reflect that you are a resident of a different world? Does what you do, even your own confession of powerlessness before God each day when you wake up, profess that you're dependent upon him? Do you eagerly long for the restoration of all things? Or are you simply looking forward to all the pleasures that you're going to get to enjoy in this life? It's part of why I'm so encouraged by all of you who are here. You're to be commended. Part of you being here demonstrates that, at least in some part, you do value that identity as one of being a heavenly citizen and not just a citizen of this earth. Because you've come to be around other Christians, you've come to sit under the teaching of God's word, and all of those things, they reorient your priority. Like tuning a piano that's out of tune, you get the tuning instrument and you rework it so that it's rightly aligned. Sitting under God's word, sitting with God's people is a way to retune our hearts so that we remember that here we have no lasting city, but we do seek this city that is to come. I think the another third and final way that we might do this is by reconstructing and domesticating Jesus like a pet chihuahua. I don't even know if people still own those, but like a pet chihuahua, we like the idea of having Jesus around, but we still want him to obey our commands. 
We want, we want him to sit when it conveniences us. We want him to be like that kind of cosmic vending machine that when we need something, we just go and press the button and out comes whatever it is that we need. He's allowed to yap at us every once in a while, but the moment that he says that I can't sleep with my girlfriend or that I should prioritize my spiritual growth by being meaningfully involved in a local church, we put him outside. We don't believe that Jesus is truly the only way to God. He's a way to God that saves me from my sins, but he's not the way to God of giving my life over to him as Lord. We can subtly and very easily reconstruct and domesticate God to be of our own liking so that, again, Jesus isn't just the only way to God. He is the way when it conveniences me, but I find other things that help me to enjoy this life. If you're a Christian, even as I exhorted earlier, help others to discover this Jesus. Remember the story we talked about a few weeks ago about the shepherd and the sheep? Again, in the ancient Near East culture, sometimes for the sake of the security of their sheep, two different shepherds with two different flocks of sheep would allow their sheep to sleep together overnight. All of these sheep would intermingle with one another. And so when the morning came, how was the shepherd to know which sheep were his? Well, he would simply call out and like that, the sheep would follow because they knew his voice. There are many lost sheep out there who can hear the voice of Jesus if only we expose them to it. And so we need to introduce our non-Christian friends to this Jesus in his word so that they can hear his voice. We can invite others to read the Bible with us, to ask engaging questions about this Jesus. Mark's a wonderful gospel to start in, even just as we considered earlier in Mark chapter 2. If anybody has questions about whether Jesus is God or not, right from the get-go, this gospel itself affirms that Jesus is God. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So we can trust that these sheep will hear his voice. Who in your life might benefit from you reading the Bible with them? How can we help them see God on their own in the scriptures? How can we, from reading the scriptures with them, help them to see the beauty of Jesus as the only way to God? And if you're not a Christian and you don't like the exclusive claim of Jesus being the only way to God, I pray that you realize this is not a restrictive or vilifying claim. It's actually a claim of hope. Because Jesus clearly, graciously provides the means of salvation. He provides the way for us to be saved. And we actually don't have to do any work to achieve it because he's already done the work for us. We simply have to receive that gift by faith and turn from our sins. And if you've never done that, there's no amount of church attendance, there's no amount of moral obedience to God's word, there's no amount of Christian friends that you have around you that will present you as righteous before God. The only way 
that you can be presented as righteous before God is to pray to God, to confess your sin, to confess that you're incapable of receiving him on your own, but that you believe that what he has done does cover for your sins. And that in his resurrection from the dead, you can be sure that you too one day will rise from the dead and be with God because you're going to be clothed in Christ's own righteousness. And you can pray that prayer anytime as God reveals himself to you. Let's pray. Oh God, save us from ourselves. Keep us from believing the lie that we can make ourselves right before God through any other means besides the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we rejoice in the hope that is ours in Jesus and of the simple means that you have granted us to find our way to you. God, would you call lost people to yourself? Awaken their eyes. Open their eyes. Cause their hearts to believe that this Jesus is the only way to God and that they can find hope and peace in him. And we pray that in his name. Amen. We're going to sing a final hymn before we close.